Hi, this is Repatterning. I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Kata. This talk is with Maya Indiraganesh. Maya is a technology and digital cultures researcher, writer, and educator. She co-leads a master's program on artificial intelligence, ethics, and society at Cambridge University, and also works as a writer and curator on art, culture, and AI. In this interview, we'll be talking with Maya about language and metaphor, artificial intelligence and instinct, the flaws and costs of technology, and scoring societies. Hi, Maya. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So I think we're catching you just before you're leaving Berlin. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, I was I was actually thinking because you mentioned that um, it's been a while that you've been going back and forth uh, between Berlin and then your workplace, which is outside of Berlin, which you can tell us about. Um, that do you think of this as a radical change that's happening now or do you see it more as um, coming to terms with something that's already been happening for a while? Well, I think, I mean, I've been doing this back and forth for a while between Berlin and the UK where I'm moving to. And I'm moving because it feels not sustainable to be traveling back and forth for work. And I don't just mean sustainable in terms of energy usage, mm. but there's a different kind of energy of just yourself Um being a person who has to uh, teach and be creative and um, be in the world. And living in two places is really hard because of communities or FOMO. And yeah, so I think I am appreciating being in one place, which is amusing because, I mean, we came out of a, we are in maybe still a pandemic, but we had like a period of just being in one place for a long time. Mm. But I think it was that process of being in one place and looking around at that place and saying, am I here? Why am I here? What is, what keeps me here? And it became increasingly hard to rationalize that when my work was elsewhere and there was a community that I was not part of where that work was, um, I guess I'm saying my life is my work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's that's the that's the changing pattern. Mm. And the work that you have been doing and are going to be doing more of over in England um, is, I suppose we could say, like orbiting around uh, questions to do with technology and intelligence and. Uh, conceptions of uh, human and machine interfaces and things like this um, what's a what's a nice way into all of this um, maybe you want to talk a bit about AI anarchies or uh, or the, the kind of the, the motivating questions behind what you were doing there okay yeah I think actually the work that I do my day job mm is quite specific and academic. And things like AI anarchies, I will probably come back to that because that's very much outside my day job. But it's perhaps what keeps me keeps me going much mm. more because there are different kinds of um, ways of working on AI 
And um, yeah, I think I'll I'll keep them separate and come back to AI mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anarchies later. Um, I do keep trying to infuse one with the other, though. I keep trying to draw different parts of my life together because I'm not a big fan of the the boxes and the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think things should be a little bit more messy. Um, so, yeah, so the day job is I teach at the University of Cambridge. I teach a new master's program along with two colleagues uh, on AI ethics and society. And my students are mostly all working professionals who are coming back to university to learn more about AI, technology, culture, society. What does this new technology mean? Um, There are already a lot of concerns about how harmful this technology is. Or if it's harmful, it's also, sorry, that harm is in its brittleness, in its, you know, kind of rampant application when it hasn't really been tested very well. So uh, there are many aspects of this technology which I think are really intriguing and interesting. And like we've always made interesting technology as humans. We love our technologies. And we're making a different one now. And I I feel like we're very much in the moment of this paradigm shift. And trying to make sense of this paradigm shift is what is one part of what my work is both in the academy and outside it the masters uh, or sort of how that plays into the masters is first for us being very rooted in the humanities we do want to approach this technology as something that is social as cultural as political and economic there are many places where you can do courses about here's how you regulate ai and machine learning this is the law this is computation this is the code and i think we are taking um a much broader kind of approach to understand these interactions in a bit more granular way. And maybe we're saying these things are actually outside the kinds of laws that we have now. A lot of our technological developments, innovations have always just been a little bit outside the law. The law comes later, regulation comes later. Mm. And, And that's what's so interesting about looking at the history of technology. You see that there's always been like experts and innovators and creative people who are experimenting with things and moving fast and breaking things is not just a new thing. I think that, you know, there's there's that slightly chaotic edge to a lot of science and technology development, which is about moving fast and breaking things. And it's particularly acute now. Um, so I think we're trying to have um, a more holistic understanding of where AI emerges from. So the masters sort of, we... We have a histories of AI. We talk about philosophy, science and technology studies. We bring in perspectives from social sciences, uh, media studies, cultural studies of technology. And we talk about things like regulation because we the perspective I want to bring to things like regulation is, uh, is world building. Not just here's something that you must apply a law to, but recognizing that regulation and governance and policy and law are very intentional acts of shaping the world we want to see and abiding by certain principles and values that we believe our societies must uphold and must embody. So I want to sort of invite reflection in my students about what kind of world are we building mm-hmm. with this new emergent technology. So that's that's the day job. And um, And that's all really interesting because it's people who, my students are all like 
incredibly smart, competent people who are already in the world of work. They're mm -hmm. bureaucrats and policymakers, they're software engineers, they're product managers, they work in big tech and small tech and in government um, and in design. Some are in their first jobs, some have been you know, lawyers or bankers or whatever for years and years. So it's a very interesting mix of people who are in the world and who are coming back to university. And the thing that I believe we are doing together is saying, how do we, how do we make arguments? How do we understand this technology together? Because I sometimes like to say that I think my students know a lot more about AI than I do. Many of them are actually literally making it. So mm. it's a very interesting question for me. And this is why I love teaching, because you have to keep thinking about, um, yeah, what, what do you bring as somebody who is in the humanities and social sciences and who has that background? How do you bring that to bear on technology. Mm. And people sort of think about technology as just computational mm. or it's made there and then it just is out in society. And if something goes wrong, oops, sorry, didn't mean for that to happen. That was not my intention. Mm. Uh, or we look at, you know, the market will regulate it or the mm. law will regulate it, you know, as if we don't interact with these things and yeah. we're not shaping them. So that's a... That was a very long, extensive discussion <laughs> of my day job. Uh, so I don't know if I should. Tell, my students should be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> we had that problem before. Uh, so basically, maybe your role is not necessarily so much to teach them how to do AI, but more like how to, what to be aware of around it, or or how to, what context is it going into, or like the critical thinking about it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm glad you said the word critical. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's I think <laughs> what it's about. Yeah, because I guess when somebody is, you know, somebody who maybe is kind of born into it or, you know, like already is like deep into it, maybe it's necessary for somebody from the outside to be able to say like, okay, it's great that you see all those codes and you know all the things that you can do and now can you like zoom out for a moment and see what you're doing <laughs> in the world, like in yeah. the wider context. Yeah, exactly. And to see that those webs of relationality that we are all part of, that, you know, any technology, not just AI. I mean, I'm only like working on AI now, but I've always kind of like for 15 years been studying and working with different kinds of media and technology. So AI is just one of them. Mm. And I think it is about always recognizing those webs that it emerges from, that it's part of, that it inhabits, and mm. that it's always going to shape and mm -hmm. be part of. So yeah, absolutely. And and many of these things are quite new to people outside many of the industries that uh, fund and support and shape and build these technologies. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's it's also something where like you're in a way helping to create the the future culture of discussion around AI and machine learning and related questions. But in a situation where these kinds of technologies are trending towards becoming completely ubiquitous and in a sense, five years from now or 10 years from now, it might be the case that people won't talk about AI because it'll just be all computing or, you know, all technology that in a way, what you could end up creating is a sort of a, f a framework for for understanding. I mean, it sounds a bit grand to say it, but like a, a, a framework for trying to understand the culture of all future technology. Yes. Um, which is, yeah, a, a little bit mind boggling to. Yes. No, I think, to think about. 
I think you're absolutely right and that's actually exactly it. And there's Yes, thank you for saying that. It is about the culture of how we talk about these things and what we say about them. Mm-hmm. I th- and there are two things there. One is this idea of um I mean many people have said it when it becomes indistinguishable from it just becomes part of everyday life then we it stops becoming something that's that's special or distinct it becomes ubiquitous in certain practices processes technology i mean we're already using elements of mm. quote unquote ai uh if we have this imaginary of ai that comes from science fiction then yes that's something else um but we're already using computer vision we're already using algorithmic technologies we are subject to them and we're you know actively using them or reusing them in our work so yes some things are already are already there i think that's that's one part of it um but i think it's also how it is transforming certain kinds of social baselines or relationships or ways we respond to or understand each other um and i'm quite interested in this part this kind of you know how society starts changing itself and responding to these technologies so i mean simple things like credit scores on your uber you know if you have this uber app you do have a score and we live in a very scoring society you know we 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 rate each other constantly mm-hmm. you know uh, an artist produces uh, a novel okay and that can be rated on goodreads mm-hmm. you know there's something very specific about that kind of <clears throat> of rating because it's not just you can say well i'm not just kind of saying anything about the novel but i'm letting other people know that they should invest their time in this novel if i give it like five stars or something like that you know so mm. it's not just uber it's also about music and art and culture and should you get a loan or whatever so we've always had things like quantification and measurement we are deeply drawn to these things we really orient ourselves around them we for like hundreds and hundreds of years so this is nothing new but i think it's the scale and the scope and the speed with which this happens the fact that it's not a curated conversation at all anyone can be rating you on anything mm. um and i think so i think it's these kinds of societal shifts or that we will we will rely on a machine translation transformation or interpretation of things much more because it is going to be accurate in a way that a human cannot be accurate but that's because then everything is moving at that scale and speed we have like we're building machine systems for machine systems to be regulated by machine systems so um computer vision system inside in a city or a driverless car this is not a car for a person to drive it is it is part of it is like this really complex large data system that is really machines talking to each other mm. we just kind of like happen to be there and we're using these things ostensibly to make our lives easier or better or something i don't know they that's what they tell us um but yeah i i think it's so a lot of these relationships that we think of as law regulation accountability even sort of communication it's between and across a lot of these technologies you know um and i think that at the end of the day though we kind of like talking to each other and i think this is part of the problem that somebody said to me 
I think it was last Friday, I was at somebody's birthday party and I met a very interesting woman who said to me, we don't really know what language is. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about that. It's been like six days and I can't stop thinking about this phrase that we don't know what language is. And I'm very aware that we're in a moment when there's this technology called chat GPT mm. that's out in the world and there's an interface that people are, you know, kind of interacting with this with this huge development in AI. And um, and yes, you, you can know what language is. You can break it down into its parts. You can study it. But we can say what language is like. And because of some of my work on, you know, metaphors, I'm kind of always paying attention to when people say language is a bridge. I'm like, no, you're saying it's like a bridge. You're, it is not a bridge mm. because a bridge is a bridge, right? <laughs> you're saying language is a bridge. You're saying it com- connects things are not understood but there's so many metaphors of language Mm. and now uh and and i'm fascinated by the fact that we are so we have this ability like i mean there's so many different kinds of languages animals have their own languages um so it's not just kind of human language but we are made by our language we're shaped by it we really understand it we're obsessed with it um but we can't really understand it very well i mean like it's hard to it's hard to make machines understand natural human language that's why chat gpt is really interesting to people however at the same time chat gpt doesn't know language mm. it is sampling it is a very very fast big massive computational system that is sampling um a statistical representation of how frequently words occur in relationship to each other. Mm. So, and this is, I'm going to cite, I do a lot of oral citations <laughs> because I'm always reading stuff and I'm very aware that I want to, you know, yeah, it's not just yeah. me thinking about things. It's like, you know, I'm building on or referring to people's work. So there's this uh, scientist called Murray Shanahan who wrote a great paper that I was just reading a couple of days ago about what do large language models actually know? And in that paper, he, oh, what are they really doing? Do they really know language? One of the things he says in that paper is, if you ask chat GPT, if you put in twinkle, twinkle, the thing that's going to come out is little star, mm. because that is the most common thing that's in the data set that chat GPT relies on and that draws from. So it is just statistical frequency. And of course, there's layers of complexity to it, but it doesn't know language. It's a predictive machine, right? It predicts what's coming next, what word is going to come next. So it can only, and all prediction is only based on kind of like past patterns. Mm. Um, so so ChatGPT supposedly knows language um, and we have the sense that, oh, it's talking to us, but I don't think it does. And, and, and the blurs and the breaks and the glitches that happen when it doesn't know what to say next is because it doesn't have a data set to draw on mm. about you know the the thing you're talking about so i was trying to to ask it to to write things in the in certain versions of poetry that it had no access to and i'll i'll talk about that again a little later maybe um but think about like I mean, I'm not saying that human conversation is any better. Um, human conversation can also be terrible. We were just having this this conversation earlier about, you know, why are people why are people making podcasts all of a sudden? You know, because we actually enjoy chatting with each other. But maybe there are some people that nobody wants to talk to. You know? So they just like have podcasts so they can talk to themselves and two or three of their friends. Um, so I think 
when human beings, when we have like kind of glitches and breaks in our conversation, when we don't know what to do next or say next or we encounter a difficult situation, we don't know how to have the conversation. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do mm-hmm. in that moment, you know, when we uh, don't know what to say next? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we are twinkle, twinkle, We're missing so. the database <laughs> now that, uh, and, and either we can reach back to it or we can't. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a... Um, I suppose an inevitable tendency to to anthropomorphize once the glitches occur. I know that when I was messing around with ChatGPT when it first came out and I, you know, just like everybody else, I instantly kind of had the initial kind of, um, how would you say, like the initial curiosity. And then the step two is kind of like this slightly evil instinct to figure out how to try to break it. But then if you ask it some question that seemingly causes it to glitch out or to have some kind of a break, it's you kind of almost inevitably get struck with this sensation that you're dealing with some person, even though you're not. So you 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 instinctively anthropomorphize, or at least I did when I was doing this, and I know that other people did as well. And I suppose that this is kind of like a, in a way, like a starting point for a lot of the metaphorical kind of uh, building out of the surroundings around the technology is because we just can't help but attempt to anthropomorphize as we go along. I mean, yeah, does it, <laughs> does it make any sense? Uh-huh. I think at the same time you get the, the the feedback or the, no, I'm not a human sort of a thing when, you know, like you ask a question of uh, how does it feel to answer so many questions and like I'm a machine I don't have any feelings you know which like so much rings also like all these sci-fi movies you know like all these um, mm-hmm. sci-fi presentations of uh, of AI um, I was reading a, an article in Hungarian about uh, this and that was one of the things that it was pointing out that yeah like is it exhausting to answer so many or how many questions do you answer per day and is it exhausting and like I, I don't make any efforts to do this work. I'm not. I'm not a human. So it's like counter mm-hmm. uh, anthropomorphizing. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I found interesting there, which is also kind of related to this language question you were saying, so the journalist asked, um, "What's the most popular food in Hungary?" And the answer was, "The most popular food in Hungary is food." And then, you know, and, fu- and and the food in Hungary is generally contains a lot of paprika and onions mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow, you would, you would never say this in a human conversation. You would never say that the most popular food is food. And kind of it makes sense somehow when I, when I think about it. It's like, yeah, I guess food is <laughs> the most popular it's food. The and, category or, food. Or also kind of like a very, I don't know, very democratic answer, you know, like we, we can't say like one food is the most mm-hmm. uh, popular. We're like, uh, there's a characteristic of, of the various foods. Right, like you were running into a kind of a mathematical, statistical kind of uh, glitch in, <laughs> in how it was making these answers, right? Yeah, right. It's like, I can't tell if uh, goulash or percot came up more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The anthropomorphization piece is really interesting. It's it's because of things like language. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean there's many many computational things that AI is doing unbeknownst to us. We don't anthropomorphize those things because they were never 
I don't know, there's, there's a scale of computation that humans don't do anyway. Mm. So we don't think of, we don't think to anthropomorphize, but I think it's this intersection of bodies and language. And so the, the embodied robots, I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, disembodied chatbots and things around. It's only when they start speaking because of the chat element that, you know, the anthropomorphization happens. Mm. But, you know, we haven't... Um, yeah, I mean, we're not uh, we're not thinking about things we just computation as anthropomorphic. It's it's the language and the body's piece. And I was very happy to see this last week that there's actually been an interesting shift in metaphors of AI. And there's a sci-fi writer called Ted Chiang who's just uh, published a really interesting article in the New Yorker, which everyone should read. And it uses uh, a computational metaphor for AI. And it it's the metaphor of compression, of how uh, lossless and lossy compression, compression that is uh, right. fundamental this to... This is the, uh, the blurry JPEG. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the world, mm. basically saying that um, it is compressing what's out there and replaying it to you. Now, that, that act, the, the compression, the JPEG... Uh, the sound file, these these are all computational metaphors. And people have lots of things to say about that Ted Chiang piece that, you know, there's always the person who says, well, actually, mm-hmm. comma, you know, ChatGPT is nothing like a JPEG and it's not actually compression. But he is a science fiction writer. I mean, he's also a computer scientist. He's a science fiction writer and he's trying to do something else with that piece where he's saying... Think about how we think about these things. Mm. And he's, and I love that he's actually using a very different kind of language in how we think about that. If we think about ChatGPT as an act of compression mm. and understand compression, understand the knowledge that's on the internet, you know, then we're not, we're not kind of caught up in this nonsense about building another kind of human. You know, that's definitely there in the imagination of AI, but there's absolutely no reason why it needs to be. Mm. And I think one of the big important shifts we need to do with this technology. I mean, I can't say that I'm, I don't know if I'm fully against it. I think it would be a bit pointless uh, and a waste of energy to be fully against these things. Mm. There's lots of amazing things that we are doing with technologies that people have have produced. I don't know why AI is different from this mic. Um, Maybe we are you know, you're as much sort of caught up in the, the hype if you're taking seriously a lot of things we're being told about AI, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm kind of interested in when we stop trying to make it like humans or particular kinds of humans or humanoid and say, okay, this is something, we can do all kinds of other things with it. But to do that, you first have to understand the world that AI comes into and start looking at problems that exist in the world. If your problem is that human beings can't understand each other Mm. um, and need translation to happen at a high speed and instantaneously, um, then you will build technologies in that way. But if you see the problem of the world as, you know, a lack of accountability or violence or greed or corruption or damage, environmental damage, then you will start thinking about solutions differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who also look at these things and say, well, technology is the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It might be part of the answer. Um, but I think that moving away from the 
anthropomorphic metaphors of AI, for me, signals like a really valuable shift in saying maybe we can just think about this as computers mm. computing, mm. you know, and not mm. computers trying to be like humans or, mm. or whatever. So I don't know if we need that much language. And, and even things like chat GPT is going to be useful in very specific and narrow kinds of applications, you know, and, and as you were saying, pointing out, it comes with all kinds of glitches and flaws and faults and moments of, of breaking, you know, so we, because it is just computers doing things and they mm. always break. Mm, mm, yeah. Did you have a particular agenda when you first came to AI or when you first started to deal with AI? Interesting. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if I was even intentional about working on AI. I think it it was there, it was a moment um, and I happened to be doing a PhD at the time and I think that's sort of how it happened. But I've been working on lots of other technologies as well. So mobile phones and big data and, you know, when I like to say when, when new media was new, I would do new media things. Um, so from the early mid 2000s, I think I've always been working at technology, society and culture. And um, so AI is just one more. So for me, I I see this in a long line. And that's why I, I rely a lot. And I love to think about the histories and emergence of these things. I'm also very, I have been very embedded in movements and communities working with um digital media, social media, the internet around questions of data protection or privacy, digital security. So I'm, so for me, there's also a whole other sort of digital that has nothing to do with AI as, as a sort of sub field. Um, but I know that, so when I came to start studying it and looking at it, it was through things like the driverless car and the, the research on that. Um, I think I brought to it the sort of sensibilities and questions I have always put to technology, mm. even earlier technologies or socio-technical processes. Mm. Um, and I know I've been sort of talking to some of my friends, like professional friends about like, I have a background in media and cultural studies. What does it mean to work on AI now? Do we understand this as a kind of media and what is it mediating? And I don't know the answer yet, but mm. hopefully one day one day I will. But I but I definitely see it in kind of a long line of socio-technical processes. But that then begs the question what what comes after AI? Mm. You know, is it in many people's imagination it is the ultimate thing? But I don't know if it is, mm. you know, I, I kind of push back against that because that imagination kind of of AI as the ultimate thing imagines that or assumes that AI is about building another human mm. or cloning some aspect of, of humanity. And to do that is like something like God, you know, and that's like the ultimate. And that's mm. all very like, I don't know, Judeo-Christian and it's a little too eschatological. It's no. Uh, I don't think yeah, that's it's like the, the ultimate metaphor, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's why when you you know look at stock imagery around AI, mm. um, one of the first things you see is that painting from the Sistine Chapel, the you know right, God and the Adam with the, yeah, the touching fingers, the fingers, you yeah. know the the spark of the divine uh, consciousness that mm, you know mm. the the creator 
you know, mm. sort of infuses into the human to show that connection. And then some of the images have that robot standing in the middle between Adam and God. You oh, know, right. it's really creepy. <laughs> Pretty bold also. Yeah. <laughs> bold suggestion. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Is, is there, are there different kinds of metaphors related to AI depending on where you go in the world? Yes, indeed they are. Um, I think in different places there are different metaphors of AI But the interesting thing that I found in my work kind of trying to map metaphors in different places is that perhaps because of how new AI is in its imagination, but also in the computation, there's actually a lot of coherence and stability in metaphors around the world. So oh, they haven't had time to start to separate out from each other. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I think also... Um, Yeah, they haven't had time to separate out from each other. But I think also it's um, conventional wisdom that cultures are so different from each other. But actually, maybe they're not. With some things, they're not. Things like computation um, might be one thing, but how they... It's, the difference comes in how they're used. It's that interface between computation and society. That's where the difference comes out. And... AI as computation, as technology is still too difficult for people to understand. So in my works mapping out metaphors of AI, we, in interviews and in surveying material, you know, kind of desk research, machine learning was not something we talked about a lot. We talked about AI. And actually, AI is largely machine learning or it's computer vision or natural language processing. People couldn't talk about those things so much. They could talk about AI. And AI, you could think of as it is something that exists in science fiction. It is something that exists in marketing. Um, it doesn't really exist in, you know, in, in the work of software engineering, maybe. People will kind of talk about building computer vision systems or applications thereof. They'll talk about working in natural language processing. They'll talk about, you know, uh, machine learning and algorithms and models and, you know, different mm. kinds of functions and applications around those. So in mapping metaphors of AI, it was very much a cultural research project that looked at that intersection between perceptions of AI in different parts of the world and how it manifests in business media, but also science fiction, um, also kind of bureaucratic or government, um, you know, plans and dreams and ambitions uh, in culture and cinema, pop, pop culture. So, for instance, you know, one of, the, one of the pieces of that metaphors work was looking at uh, Chinese science fiction. And I worked with a Chinese uh, colleague based in Los Angeles, Jenny Bourne, and she looked at 36 novels that have won... Uh, what is called the Galaxy Award, I think. Yeah, that's the, like um, science fiction uh, literature prize in China. And she looked at the plots of the novels that had won this prize, I think from 1983 to 2020. And what's and so we, we wrote about what's in those novels. And the thing is, one of the metaphors that is most dominant in that is AI as tool or threat. And that's a pretty stable metaphor that we find in other places as well. You know, AI can be a tool or a threat. Um, AI can, and, and it's always kind of positioned on that dichotomy. AI can, mm -hmm. you know, give humans lots of time to do anything they want, but it could also put humans 
out of a job you know it's it's if you kind of stop to clear away the fluffy bit on top and think about what is what is the metaphoric structure of that idea then you see it all comes down to tool or threat and it was really interesting that in chinese science fiction over the last 40 years um this is a pretty stable metaphor mm. so people love to you know talk right now about how china is so different culturally and sure it is it's different from every other place it is only like china you know um but their metaphors are the same and we find that bureaucrats whether they're in south africa or india um want to leverage this marketing power of ai to make money for the country not that they want to actually make the country better through changing laws or policies or anything mm-hmm. like they're just like oh ai is a silver bullet it's going to like solve poverty it's going to right it's going to be this thing that we spray on to what's already there and then that'll kind of magically make things better in some way absolutely absolutely yeah. so it, yeah it's interesting what you when you say about this uh, the consistency of this metaphor from these chinese science fiction novels because part of what occurs to me about this is that it's more or less the same kind of metaphor if we want to call it that that was prevalent at the beginning of the industrial revolution when you had the luddites smashing looms in factories in england because the looms were tools but also threats to the existing kind of order of things and it might be interesting in a way to try to figure out which of these metaphors about whatever happens to be the cutting edge of technology at the time has itself somehow remained consistent over time when considered in terms of like decades or centuries more so than like you know weeks or months mhm there's something about our relationship with technology mm. there um yeah i know that when we were doing this project uh well we sort of are still slowly chipping away at it which was attempting to draw a kind of a line of comparison between the emergence of railways as the cutting edge of human technology in like the mm-hmm. 19th century and making a kind of an explicit comparison between that and artificial intelligence today and uh you know as is the nature with artistic projects uh these things can kind of get a bit bogged down in the practicalities of actually just getting them finished but one of the things that's been interesting in having a project that has been a thing that we've just been slowly chipping away at for a couple of years is the extent to which even within that couple of years the discussions around the subject of machine learning and artificial intelligence and related things has itself altered and how the technology itself has uh i mean I, if i can use the metaphor of like uh you know it growing or improving or whatever it it is changing for sure and so the work that we were doing at the beginning that would take us a week to do is now something that we could do in a couple of days and you know we, who knows where that you know where that winds up yeah yeah i think that um that's also part of the strategy i think with things like ai applications they're out there in the world as is the discourse about them mm. and the technology and the discourse kind of go hand in hand and putting things out into the world 
breaks the world and the world breaks the technology that gets fed back to improve the technology it's all happening in real time and there are so yes so at one level things are improving so um when the first you know when google translate was out in the world there were computer scientists who were saying that it was replaying a lot of the um gender biases in various societies that are in the language already were coming out in google mm. translate now google Tran- uh, google translate had a way of dealing with that you know they fixed it mm. they they wrote blog posts about it they kind of actively worked towards it so you could argue and people do argue that yes it's important to put these things out in the world and then you break them there's a lot of this kind of adversarial hacking that happens to try and identify what the flaws are in a technology and then you improve it now in that process there are costs right and who's bearing the costs for a technology being out there in the world and breaking mm. and then yes it goes back and this company sort of like gets better at it you know benefits from it you know financially as well from having a better technology that we are not in a position to refuse anymore or it's increasingly hard to refuse the technology because it's just kind of comes built in baked into to things um so even if you don't want an you know assistant from a company like amazon you don't want a device called an echo and you don't want the assistant that comes inside it mm. many people just have them because they just come free you have to you have to do something intentional mm. to reject that so it's that cost that is very hard to uh quantify when the technology is out in the world when the discourse is out in the world i think there are a lot of people who do a kind of soft ephemeral labor of correcting the discourse and how we're talking about things that is being listened to and is being picked up and so it's not surprising to have sort of corporate or policy or other kinds of ways of you know sort of institutions talking about these technologies that is cognizant of what's being said about it you know people understand mm. and it's being picked up but there's all kinds of costs in that breaking and reshaping of the technology that yeah <laughs> not being recognized i think yeah yeah, yeah. you said earlier that uh, ai and urkis is very much outside of your day job uh context mm-hmm. can you tell us about All right, yeah, we wanted to loop back around. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I should talk about AI Anarchies. Um so AI Anarchies was a project, uh, an autumn school that was hosted, produced by the Junge Academy at the Academy der Kunst, that's the Academy of Arts here in Berlin, um led by Clara Hermann and Uh, Clara invited Nora Khan who's a, a cultural critic and writer and curator based in the US. Uh, so invited Nora and myself to curate AI Anarchies um as an autumn school. So we there there are two sort of interesting and compelling ideas in that. So one is the idea of a school itself and kind of a place we wanted it very much to be a place for un- unlearning or testing out new ideas and and about ai and i think that was kind of the anarchic part i mean people did sort of come to us and say what's the anarchic part because it was very much 
a school, there were sessions, there was timings, there was talks, there was like all these things that we understand of, you know, as schooling. But I think the anarchic part was in who we invited, uh, how we recognize what expertise means in AI. And maybe in like the conversations we had about AI, there were some things that were explicitly not about AI. Um, I mean, we had many workshops that were about technology and design and culture and society and machine learning. Mm. Uh, but for the most part, I think we were making over seven days and with, you know, whatever, 60 people, 50 people. Um, I think we were making an argument for how else we could talk about this moment of AI's emergence. And so we the the project itself was... I mean, it's interesting. It was a school. I teach in academia. In that sense, it was very much unlike academia because it was so sort of ephemeral. There was no assessment in creating. And, um, but it was like academia in which there were kind of lectures and we did invite many academics to be part of it. But there were also artists and cultural practitioners. And uh, we had kind of, I think, like uh, maybe weak boundaries around these people and what their expertise is and what they do. Mm. So it was a week-long event where we had a group of people who, you know, was the study group. And then we had all of these other people who were like speakers and doing workshops and events and, and doing talks. And that was, it was actually incredibly intense and... Um, interesting to be in a space where you were with so many interesting people and hearing so much about AI, but also what it means to have an artistic or cultural practice in this particular moment mm. um, with lots of technology. And especially since things like art and culture and creativity are very much things that, you know, AI is supposed to be kind of addressing or thinking about talking about. I think we talked a lot about um, human culture and history and society and um yeah i mean i think it's it probably makes more sense to follow what was on the website uh, and there's we worked with a great group called holo that's based here and in england and in toronto a fantastic group of three people who do documentation live documentation of arts and cultural events mm -hmm. so it's somewhere between I think critical art writing and journalism and kind of embedded ethnographic reporting. So I would shout out to the Holo documentation or it was called the AI Anarchies Tracker. And they tracked people who were saying and doing, you know, giving lectures or doing workshops or talks in it. And mm. I think very beautiful profiles of people, but also very thoughtful sort of capturing of if somebody wants to visit the event later, how do they... How do they engage with what, with their ideas? So there was a lot, that Holo team, I think, had to listen very, very closely to what was happening in AI anarchies um, and then, you know, documented there were interviews with people. So we had all of these things going on. There was like, you know, feminist healthcare workshop and because we wanted to talk about bodies and conditions of bodies in times when AI is supposed to be all about disembodiment. Um, we had workshops about... Um, dead and dying Amazon echoes because we wanted to talk about <laughs> things like, you know, uh, the environment and waste, electronic waste, and we wanted to talk about sustainability. You know, these are not often part of the hype mm. Mm. of AI. So I think the anarchic part was saying, was about saying, what are the boundaries 
around how we talk about how we talk about AI. And um, I mean, I say it, it was not part of my day job. I mean, technically it wasn't because <laughs> it was literally outside it. Uh, but that said, I had two of my colleagues who run a fantastic podcast called The Good Robot Podcast. They were there and were doing a workshop on how do you do feminist podcasting? And what is, it, you know, so just like very, like, there were very practical hands-on workshops as much as there were sort of like fantastic, big poetic talks about big ideas. And, you know, you had people like Jackie Wang and Ramon Amaro kind of in real time riffing and just making poetry and making theory and making friendship together mm. uh, on stage in front of all of us, you know. So there were some very sparkling, amazing talks and there were very practical workshops as well. So uh, the last thing I'll say about AI anarchies is that actually just yesterday, we had like a very lovely check-in with some of the people who are part of the study group. And one of them kind of confessed that while she was at AI Anarchies, she booked herself a trip to a resort on a very far away, isolated, lonely island because she, while she was sitting in the space, she was, she was loving it, but she wanted to be far away, you know, because she knew that she needed time after it was over <laughs> to be able to process what was happening. And I thought it was hilarious that she was booking that trip while she was in this very intense space because, yes, I think many of us felt quite overwhelmed by, mm. you know, it's one week and you have all of these things going on. So I don't know. I can answer more specific questions about AI anarchies, <laughs> but there was a lot <laughs> that, that was going on. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, revealing in a way that, like, somebody needs an emergency uh, disappearing to the far side of the world to to deal with just how overwhelming it might have been. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because I think it's the ideas, right? When you have like yeah. the density of bright, interesting, curious people together for a week, um, it can get a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. I suspect that maybe three, four days is maximum. And we did, actually, one of the things we I, I liked about how we structured it is we gave a lot of, we gave people the option to check out and to say that they don't have to be part of things. We had a break in the middle. We kept Sunday absolutely off. Um, we had morning journaling sessions. We had a dinner party. We had um, lots of quite generous lunch breaks. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think we wanted to also get people to feel like they could step out because it is very intense and we wanted people to have space to kind of process. But at the same time, you know, there's also FOMO or you feel like you're there, you must listen to everything, you must be part of everything. So it can get it can get quite overwhelming. It can mm -hmm. get to be a lot. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that it could have happened in any other place? Like, is there something that... Uh, d does it relate to the city of Berlin in a specific way in that, like, mm -hmm. a lot of these people... We're already here or anything like that? Well, um, I mean, it's true that most of the people who were in the study group were from Europe or the UK. So quite close to Berlin because of just kind of finances and resources that mm -hmm. were available. Um, I think we had speakers and workshop people mostly coming from Europe, UK and North America. And... I don't think we had people from 
you know, places outside there because also there's a lot of attention to AI here. People are definitely certainly working on AI in other places, but it's also about the extent to which it is part of your society mm. or culture and what is the critical mass of people subject to it, but also working on it. And I think it's quite niche in other parts of the world still. So I think it's kind of a bit fake or false to say, well, we must have, you know, people from India, or Indonesia, just because we want to have them, you know, sure, there might be people working on things, invite them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we did have somebody from Malaysia, uh, who didn't come in the end because of COVID. But, mm -hmm. you know, feminist technologist uh, called Jackson Key, um, who so so we did have people from from other places but i think it was mostly concentrated in a in and around what is like a berlin vortex mm -hmm. or ecosystem for these various reasons i think there's a lot of discussion about these topics there's a there's a lot of i mean from just the perspective of funding and resources for education but also public art and culture around technology in europe and in Berlin. So I think it's, it is very much about the fact that we are in Germany, there is funding for these things. You have places like the Academy der Kunst, you know, run by amazing people like Clara Herman, who are thinking about these questions and willing to put resources into it. Yeah. In other parts of the world, like in the US, you don't have this kind of public funding for the arts and culture. So no, I don't think you would see that. Or if these things happen and these kinds of workshops certainly happen in the United States, they're happening in a much more corporate uh, or corporate adjacent uh, bubble or academic corporate, you know, bubble. Yeah. Um, but I think that what we really did try to do, I think, was to try and call in kind of different sorts of people from different backgrounds. So game designers, cognitive scientists, you know, philosophers, um, artists. We tried to curate the study group kind of in a in an interesting way. And I think that was one of the strongest aspects of it that people said it was the community and the network that they went away mm. with, which mm. was the most inspiring. And for me, I think that's like a big tick mark against, okay, we did something right, mm. you know, mm. with this. So that that was a, a nice thing to, to hear about. So, so yes, I think it is very much about Berlin, but I reckon you could do this in many sort of yeah. places in Europe and UK where you have this kind of institutional support for it. Mm. You mentioned earlier that uh, AI, within a time, but AI is can do everything or can do a lot of things that we're doing and can take over a lot of jobs maybe that we're doing. And uh, of course, there are all these conversations now like AI can now write an article maybe and can maybe write a novel. And when I was thinking about this, I was you know trying to play with it like, okay, what is it what I can imagine that AI can do that I could feel satisfied with, let's say? And where would be that shift point where I feel like the human experience or the human emotionality or something beyond the computation is necessary to make it satisfying. Um, and I wonder if you have some thoughts on this or if you can, if you would name things if, mm. that mm. you think are in that area. Mm. No, that's a fantastic question. And I'm also taking my time to think about it um, because it is something I think about as well. I was watching a movie the other day. What was I watching? Some kind of big budget movie. It'll come back to me. 
and I was, oh, damn it, now it's in my head. And I'm like <laughs> trying to think about it and it's preventing me from talking. But um, big budget movie. And you know, big budget movies these days, there's like, every time you see a shot from above, I just know it's a drone. You know, there's mm. drone cameras, right? It's like, of course, that's... And I was thinking about... Oh, I suppose these AI types will say, you don't need humans to do these things anymore because you can visualize increasingly with time as these technologies get better and better, like all of this face swapping and you don't need green screens anymore. Mm. You know, you can just put people against backdrops. You can like, and I think this is a lot to do with gaming, uh, gaming aesthetics and gaming culture you can put all kinds of people in different contexts to make movies. You don't need people really, you know, to do a whole lot of things on a movie set, let's say. There's lots of things. If the green screen, green screen goes or certain kinds of filming go, I mean, there's a couple of ways you could cut that. One is that, oh, you're always going to do, need humans to do more and more complex things that machines can't do because there are still lots and lots of things that machines can't do. And they're not going to be able to do very well for a long time. So you can say that the work that humans will have to do in AI supplemented AI co-created spaces will be more niche. So you'll need a higher level of skill or you'll get those edge cases to deal with or something like that. That's one way to look at it. Um, that said, one of the things that robots are extremely bad at is um, like in agriculture, picking soft fruit because there's something about the human hand that we're able to pick fruit without destroying them, a robot hand. And that's about like totally about robots. Uh, robot tech, robots keep breaking. It's very hard to make embodied robots. Uh, robots crush the, mul the mulberries, raspberries, um, and... Uh, in fact, I think one of my colleagues, Stephen Cave, has an article in an English newspaper about this where he talks about mulberries. Um, is it the Times? or? Sorry, Stephen, if you're listening. <laughs> I can't remember which one it's in. Um, where he talks about, you know, robots not being able to pick mulberries. Um, so there are some things that machines certainly cannot do very well and it it, it does not scale. Um and if there are things that machines can do, what humans can do, then humans get displaced into doing the more difficult aspects or correcting what machines can't do. Um, so I don't know if it's possible to have something that machines do really satisfyingly well yet. I, I think there's a lot of working with technologies that we've been doing for like, you know, over a hundred years now, and we're going to continue to do. And we're in that process of sorting it out. But alongside that, there is the whole discourse and the anxiety and the concern about what is it that AI is going to do? Um, when is it going to kind of just become part of workflows and processes in creative arts? And when is it not? Um, I think there are some deeply unsatisfying things that it's doing now. And many people will say, oh, it's just the start. We're still in very experimental kind of stages with this thing. It will go much further. 
and it will get better as it learns from more and more of our data that we're putting on the internet. Mm. So I can fully imagine kind of pretty sophisticated conversations on very niche topics of which there is a lot on the internet. Mm. You know, so of in those topics you could probably have pretty, you know, solid interactions. Um but not not in most things. I mean, there are like extremely niche areas of human expertise that AI is nowhere near being able to do. I mean, um, I was just browsing through some excerpts and thinking about this book that's just come out in India. A writer and poet called Meena Kandasamy has a book called The Book of Desire. And it is, she's only the second woman to have translated an ancient Tamil text that's from, you know, 300 BC. Um, no, Tirukkural was written in 300 BC. Maybe a little bit um, after that. But it's definitely from, you know, uh, the before the Common Era. And Tamil is a very ancient language. It's spoken by about maybe 75 or 80 million people around the world in South India, in uh, Sri Lanka, and in the diaspora. And um, this, the Tirukkural is a three-part text about how to live. And I think there's one which is about morality, another part of it is about materialism, and the third part is about desire. And the poetry in there is pretty racy. It's, it's, it's very like sexy stuff. I mean, it's about desire. And one thing that's, and it's very fantastic poetry. And Mina is only the second person, who, second woman who's ever translated it. And mm. she says that, you know, this, this part of the book is all about the writer's encounter with what is called a deadly intoxicating Tamil woman. And Mina says that we never get a sense of who this woman is because a woman has never translated this text. So it's, um, so, so this, so she's translated it and it's called the book of desire and it's out. And, um, there's another translator of, of these works, um, AK Ramanujam from the university of Chicago years and years ago is passed away. Um, so there's some of this work on the internet in translation already. So I asked ChatGPT to write a love poem in the style of, you know, Tamil um, Akkam poetry, or kind of interior poetry. And it was, it was, first of all, it was regurgitating what was out there, what Ramanujam's work that was out there on the internet. But it was also like really awful. Mm. Now it can write love poetry maybe in Shakespearean, you know, sort of meter mm. Uh, because there's so much of that out there. Mm. Uh, but there are so many diverse, you know, sort of aspects of human culture that are, I mean, in, the English language is actually like a tiny part. And English Western culture is a very, very narrow slice of what's there. So if you actually think about what AI can do satisfyingly, I don't think we're anywhere near, you know, simple things like, you know, if you have a, if you have a, young person in, in Tamil Nadu who wants to write like a really sexy poem, love poem. <laughs> They're not, certainly not going to get it from chat GPT, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't exist in that language. So, um, yeah, and, 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 and robots can't pick, pick soft fruit. It's over there in the other corner, you know, with its blurry JPEG of a tiny slice of human culture. <laughs> absolutely, it's absolutely. It's not going to help you. Yeah. Pick Absolutely. fruit or write sexy poems. Exactly, exactly. So it's like uh, one part of me is like, yeah, okay, I get it. Everyone's like kind of losing their shit about chat GPT and AI. But also it's like, oh my God, there's like so many other kinds of things yeah. that exist in the world that 
the internet has nothing on. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, none of that yeah. that data there. So, yeah, I'm like, okay, but but it it's about going back to what we were talking about earlier as well. What kinds of things are changing with the introduction of these technologies? How does this kind of social norm or baseline change? So, the life of a young person in Tamil Nadu in South India may not change in terms of this interface of chat GPT, but their lives might be affected by integration of algorithmic systems in agriculture mm-hmm. um, with patterns of work, with bank in banking, in voice interfaces that they use on mobile phones or computer vision systems or something like that. You know, other aspects of social, political and cultural life are being changed or the basis on which you're able to enter a system or not. You know, earlier it was like push these buttons in a kiosk to submit something or donate something or whatever or have your fingerprint scanned or whatever. So those interfaces are are going to maybe start changing through mm. which people are legible to computation and automation in different kinds of social systems mm, that we mm, interact mm. with you know does that does that make sense that distinction mm. i guess yeah. Yeah, yeah and i don't know your your question is still sort of interesting about like what's satisfying mm. about what ai can do now and i think it's that's the kind of question we need to keep asking ourselves about you know what's a moment when we spot something and it's done by a machine and you're like oh that's cool Mm. Yeah. Um and that's also okay then but I still think those things are quite niche. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know people are worried about things like oh it's going to like write I don't know undergraduate exam papers or something like this and I was like yeah okay but that's like such a such a niche mm. you know such yeah. a very specific slice and I think I'm not worried about that question. Mm. I wonder if it's um if it has something to do with creativity. That, you know, like the things that maybe if we even imagine that AI will be able to do things better in certain categories, that what will distinct it, uh, distinguish it from uh, human things is maybe the use of creativity or, or, or also when we point out things that, oh, that's done by a machine and it's cool. It's kind of, we recognize that it's cool through our human creative brain that can see something that's that the machine used in a particular way that we can recognize that it's it makes it somehow interesting mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'm I'm reminded of uh this thing from a little while ago of uh nick cave being disgusted by uh chat gpt's attempt to write a nick cave song <laughs> right yes <laughs> they didn't find it satisfying <laughs> he was horrified by it yeah so. yeah though It was a very Nick Cave kind of thing to yeah. say. You know, it was his kind he, of general. He, he knows his brand. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I do like the idea of um, revisiting texts or revisiting things, as especially as technology changes. Um, it's really interesting now with the internet because we can go back twenty or thirty years and understand the context in which we said. We had ambitions, dreams, imaginaries of the digital, and we can see how they've panned out or not. And I mm-hmm. think one of the things that's really interesting me right now, or making me is very interesting for me right now, is um, what kinds of internet or digital world we thought we were creating, and what have we ended up with? Where are we now? Mm. So 
Tomorrow, I'm going to be having a conversation with Mindy Sue about the Cyber Feminism Index, which is a project that she did, and it's happening here in Diffract. Um, and that book is about cyber feminism is a very specific historic moment, term, date, but it's uh, an idea. And I'm curious about how it's it's uh, worked over time. You know, nobody says cyber feminism anymore. It's a very specific concept and idea, and it's very much about media art and, you know, certain kinds of Western countries' uh, understanding of the internet and the digital, but there's so much imaginary in it. And it's one of those moments to kind of stop and say, right, so what did we think we would do with the internet? And where are we now mm. with the internet? And I feel like, we need to do more of that being able to assess these imaginaries. I mean, part of like this metaphors work or the imaginaries work is about saying we need to document this stuff. So it, it becomes a kind of marker for us. It becomes a point at which we're like, right. So we think this, have we actually updated it? The thing about metaphors is they structure your language so much and you're thinking so much that you're always, there's very little space between you and the metaphor. You end up becoming the metaphor because that is how you're thinking about something. Mm. So that's why it's so important to change, to, to, to have reflexivity and to say that this is just a metaphor. It is not the thing itself, mm. but the metaphor and the thing itself become one. And that's what's happened with AI. And if we want to actually shift it, shift our thinking, that's why we need new metaphors. So we need to keep coming back to these things and saying, wait, is this the internet we really wanted? Is this the AI we really wanted or not? This is crap, this thing that AI is doing. We can lose it and do something else. Hmm. But we need to be able to say that we were wrong or this is not how it turned out or it's, you know, there were promises that were broken. That was our talk with Maya Indira Ganesh. If you'd like to get more information about any of the things we were talking about, all the links and other further details are on the website at repatterning.xyz. And you can also take a look at patreon.com slash repatterning. Uh, that's where, if you'd like to, you can give us some help. There's no requirement to do so, and everybody gets the same material either way. But if you'd like to, we'd be very happy for any support. Thank you and see you next time. Bye-bye.